Turn with me, if you will, to the Old Testament reading this morning. I'd like to read from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground the Lord formed, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to, to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a, a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man, this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The reading in the New Testament comes from Mark chapter 3, if you'll turn there. Mark chapter 3, beginning with verse 31. And his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Dear Father, I do pray that you will teach us from your word. And Lord, may we be open enough to be changed and different because you have spoken. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You learn a lot of things from your families. You can think back over those years and think of those different lessons that you learned. I remember, for instance, learning from my mother when I was uh, maybe only eight or nine years old that there are 27 different ways to cook okra, none of which are edible. <laughs> I learned about, I remember learning from my mother about age 11 that I was never, ever, ever again to dissect a quail in my bedroom. I remember learning some lessons from my father as well. I remember when I was really young, I think it must have been three or four because I couldn't remember back any further than that. And I remember the lesson that. If you're going to go outside and play, wear clothes. <laughs> and then I remember a lesson when I was much older, when I was a mature, about the age of 17. And uh, at that age, dads don't know too much, and they're really sort of a pain, except around midnight when your car breaks down and you need somebody to tow you home. I remember learning some lessons from my sister, too. I remember learning at about age 12 
that you don't hit girls. And the reason for that is because, one, they're girls and, and they cannot take that kind of physical abuse. But second, when you're 12, all the other 12-year-old girls are bigger than you are. <laughs> I remember also learning from my sister that it is possible for a teenage girl to have a closet crammed full of clothes and be in tears because she has nothing to wear. We learn a lot of lessons from our families. And we never escape family life. We, we grow up and uh, go away to school, maybe. And what do we do? We move into a dorm with other people, and we have a family life situation. And we get out of school, and we might go in the armed services, and we move in with other people, and we have a family life situation. Maybe we move out of home, and we decide we can't really afford this place on our own, so we have a few roommates, and we have another family life situation. And someday, probably, then we get married, we have our own family, and again, a family life situation. And even when our children leave home, even when we're left all alone, where there are still those holiday seasons, there are still those neighbors and friends, there are still those cruises to the Orient, when once again you're forced to live closely with other people in a family kind of situation. Now, there are different kinds of families. I I have nicknamed families according to different cities of the world. Let me share with you the different kind of families that I see. There are, first of all, what I call the Beirut families. You know, Beirut is the capital of uh, Lebanon. And uh, there are some families that are Beirut families. Those are families that sort of have a civil war going on. Husband comes home and says, oh, I see the house is messy again. It's just like a, a volley fired across the canyon. And the wife says, in your condition, it's one that you can tell anything's messed up. <laughs> and one of the kids says to the other kid, zip face, if you ever come in here and get my diary again, I'm going to cram it down your mouth. <laughs> and the kid replies, there's never anything worth reading in your diary. <laughs> and it's a Beirut family, civil war. Another kind of family that you see around us is called the Manila family. Now, a Manila family operates under martial law. There's a dictator, and the dictator's not always the husband. But there's a dictator, and whatever the dictator says, goes. There are rules, there are limits, there are limitations, there are curfews, and you do not break any of those at all. Or there's severe penalty. That's a Manila family. There's also what's called the Berlin family. Berlin family has walls. You can tell a Berlin family because nobody ever knows what anybody else is doing. Where's Junior? I don't know. Where's Mother? I don't know. Well, what are we going to do tonight? Who knows? When's dinner? I don't know. In fact, dinner is usually just there someplace. Nobody ever sits down to really be there together because there are so many walls in a Berlin family. There's also what I call the Hollywood family. Now, the Hollywood family looks really nice. It is the family that most of the people on the block look at and say, now there is a really nice family down the street. Mom is uh, sweet and industrious, and, and uh, dad is hardworking, and the kids are pleasant, and they get good grades, and they smile on the outside. But like a Hollywood movie set, there's nothing behind the facade there. It's just a prop. It just looks good on the outside, but underneath... There's real no, really no family support at all. The Hollywood family. 
Then there's what I call the Las Vegas family. Every day is a gamble. You know. Are we having dinner tonight? Well, the odds are better at having dinner than it is to get the lawn mowed. It's a gamble. Some families are just that way. <clears throat> There's also what I call the Kalinga family. Now, you know about the little California town of Kalinga where my family used to live. And uh, The Kalinga family is one that looks like an earthquake just hit it. Relationships are torn apart. There's nothing left, hardly. No structure at all. Right down to the foundation, it's been shattered. The Kalinga family. There's also what I call the Silver City family. Now, in the northeastern or the southeastern corner of Idaho, in the Wahi Mountains, there's a little ghost town called Silver City. Nobody lives there anymore, but the buildings are still there. You can go in uh, to those old wooden, broken-down buildings and walk on the wooden sidewalks and look and see where something used to be. Some families are sort of ghost families. There's a little ghost family in all of yours. I can go home to my mother's house and go into the room that used to be my bedroom, and after 21 years of being gone, I can tell you what's in the middle drawer of that closet because she hasn't moved anything. It was right there when I was 12 years old and 13 and 14 and 15. It's still there. It's a ghost family. Some families are like Silver City. And then finally, finally there's, well, there's the perfect family. The perfect family, besides having 2.4 children, the perfect family has a hard, industrious, hardworking dad who is very, very wise all the time. And also in that family, there is a, a mother that is, uh, is uh, compassionate and sensitive. She has all the qualities of a, of a, of a counselor and, and an RN and a gourmet chef and a chauffeur. And she's always available to help anybody in the family at any time, whether she has a career or not. She's always available, always there. And the children in that family are a delight to be around. They dress neat. They pick up their room and clean it up every day without being told. They get good grades. The only time the principal ever calls is to say what an excellent job your children are doing in school. You recognize this family. It's called the Fantasy Island family. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Now, we want to look about, at family life. In the next five weeks, I'm going to spend four Sundays looking about strengthening family life from biblical principles. And there's a couple of ways to do it. One way, of course, is to look at the roles in the family of the individual members and say, now, according to the scriptures, this is what these roles should be. And we've done that before, and that's very helpful. We're not going to do that this time. Instead, I want to look at some principles, some general principles that can strengthen every family relationship. And we'll see how that applies to all the various members of the family. This morning, I want to look at the need for privacy in the family. But coming up, I want to look at the need for intimacy, the need for support, and the need for adventure. But let's look at privacy. In Genesis 2, 18, that I read this morning, the scriptures say, it is not good for man to be alone. So it was God's design that we have a family and that we are not alone. But it doesn't say that we should never be alone. You see, there are some biblical times when we need to be alone. Let's take a look at those. 
We need to be alone sometimes just for rest. Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, Come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. The disciples were getting worn out. He said, you need to get off alone for a while. And you need to get some rest. So we have some times in our life where we need privacy because we need rest. Sometimes we need privacy because we need to hide. Elijah had been demonstrating the power of God. And now he was being chased throughout the country by the queen Jezebel. And fearing for his life, he ran and hid in the cave. Now, God didn't allow him to stay long in the cave, but for a moment he needed to hide. Peter, after being miraculously delivered out of prison, you remember the Acts account, how he went back to where all the Christians had gathered and prayed for him, and he met with him and he said, everything's okay, but then he turned and went off by himself alone. It was time to hide. There are some times in our busy life that we need just a breather to hide from the pressures or even the people confrontations for a moment. We need to be alone to hide. Third, we need to be alone sometimes to pray. To pray. Certainly in scripture it tells us a lot about praying together. The Lord's Prayer, of course, is a communal prayer. Jesus gave to us uh, as a sign that we do pray together. But he said also there are times to pray alone. Certainly Jesus, when he finished feeding the multitude, he had taught them for days, he fed the 5,000. He sent his apostles back across the, the uh, Sea of Galilee and he went up into the mountain alone to pray. So it was that Daniel in the Old Testament, after that hard day at work being a government official, went home and went up on top of the house at his usual place alone and prayed. We need to be alone sometimes. Just to pray. We also need to be alone, scriptures say, to confess. Peter had made a grand promise to the Lord that he would never deny him. Even though everyone else denies you, Lord, I'll never do it. And then when confronted, not once but three times, he denied he ever knew Christ. And when it finally dawned on him what he did, it says he ran out by himself and cried. Confession, Lord, what am I doing and what have I done? There are times when we need to be alone to confess. There are some things that need not be confessed to other people that are so personal, so private, so heart-rendering. We confess them when we're alone with God. We need to be alone also sometimes just to dream. Daniel had been called upon to interpret the king's dream. But in order to do that, he had to go and be alone for a little while first and receive through a dream himself that interpretation. Maybe we don't get dreams direct from God, but certainly we need to be alone for the daydreams of our life. We need to be alone to think through those big thoughts that always begin with what if? What if things were different? What if I decide to do this or that. We need to be alone to dream. We need to be alone sometimes to plan. Plan on what we're going to do with the wisdom we receive from God. Moses climbed up to that high mountain alone and left the people down below. And he received the commandments from God and began to formulate in his mind, I think, those plans that it would take to change a wandering herd of wilderness people into a strong nation. 
Time alone to plan. We need time alone to decide as well. Jacob, as he returned to the promised land, remember he brought all of his belongings and his all of his family, everything he owned, and he came and began to cross the river. You remember how he sent everything on ahead and he stayed back alone in the proverbial passage of him wrestling with God. There are times we need to make decisions and Jacob certainly needed to decide what's going to happen next and how do I proceed and, and what do I need to do? Times to be alone to decide. And finally, there's some times to be alone, I think, to get lonely. Being alone sometimes is good for the purpose of just realizing how much you need other people. Paul was in Rome and he was being tried for his faith and he wrote to Timothy that everyone had left him. All of those great crowds of friends were no longer around. And just about Paul's last letter was, Timothy, pick up Mark and come before winter. I miss you. I don't want to be alone. We need time of privacy that we might get lonely. Now, I think in everybody's life, there's a need to be alone. In some people's condition and position in life, there is a special need. Let me share with you what I think are some people that really need privacy, maybe more than some of the rest of us. The first type of person that needs some time alone is are the mothers with young children. Mothers with preschool children especially have to have some privacy and some time alone. A second type are people facing life-changing decisions. People looking at a new job, moving to a new location, people thinking about marriage. People with life-changing decisions on their mind need privacy and time to be alone. A third type are kids in big families or small houses. Kids in big families need that experience of being alone. A fourth type that especially need privacy are folks with intense people crisis-centered jobs. Folks who have jobs continually pushing them into relationships with other people, and especially crisis kind of situations. Need time to be alone. And I think a fifth type that especially needs privacy are all teenagers between the ages of 13 and 17. They need privacy. Time to be alone. I'm going to talk about how we get that kind of time in a minute. But there are special times when we need to be alone. All of us. And privacy, of course, means having that time absolutely alone with no one around. Now, if we live alone, we say, well, we might have too much of a good thing. We have privacy all the time. But it's possible to have privacy and to be alone and not get the spiritual advantage from it that God means for us to have. One of the first things that should happen in a spiritual sense is that we need times of privacy in order to get an objective view of ourselves, to get an objective view of what we really look like. Have you ever noticed how people look at a mirror when they're in a crowd? Now, when the choir comes out of the choir room, there's a mirror. And right before they, they come in here, so they can make sure that the collar is, is gold instead of white, or that it's straightened. But when everybody else is around, you sort of walk by a mirror quickly, and you just sort of you know do the last-minute things and walk on. But how do you look at a mirror when you're home all alone? 
How do you look in the mirror? You know, when you close the door there, when you just get out of the shower or the tub or something, no one's looking. You do a little better job of inspection. You spend a little bit more time and you sort of see the different poses and how you look a little bit. Sure you do. And you gals spend a little more time looking at everything than if the whole crowd was watching you look in the mirror. We need times of being alone so that we can get a spiritual view of ourselves where no one else is looking, where we can get an honest view, where we can spend a lot of time looking at all the details and complexities of where our life is going or has been or should be in the Lord's eyes. We need time alone to get an objective view of ourselves. Second, we need time alone in order to get down to that serious business that we have to take care of with the Lord. I don't know how it was in your family, but maybe you had some times in the past when you were a child at home, when your father said to you, now listen, I want to talk to you. And he took you out of the room with everyone else and you went over into some other room and he closed the door and you said, "Uh uh-oh, this is it. Just you and him. It could have been to tell you good news or bad news. It could have been a a growing experience or it could have been a painful experience. Special time alone. Nobody else, just the two of you. We need those kinds of times with our Heavenly Father. A great spiritual advantage, not just here at church, but God and I alone. Another spiritual advantage that we need to get out of having privacy is to begin to appreciate others' support in our life. Like Paul, sometimes we never have a chance to miss them or they have a chance to miss us. Those times of being alone are those times we reflect how much we do need them, how much we are social animals that need that fellowship and the strength and the spiritual gifts of other people. There are spiritual advantages to privacy. Now, how do you make privacy work in your home? Let me give you some some clues First of all, I think that every person in your family, whatever age, needs a place of their own. Now, that's wonderful luxury if everyone can have their own room, but everyone can have their own chair, their own corner of the room, their own nook. The best place of privacy I ever had in my life was my treehouse when I was a kid. Nobody went there but me. Every person in your family needs that place. It might be on a walk. It might be a mountainside. It might be a certain hill. It might be a beach. It might be a cabin. It needs to be a place that's theirs to be alone. Second, you need some planned isolation, some planned privacy. It doesn't just happen. Very few of us ever find ourselves, oh, everyone's gone. Here I am, all alone. It doesn't happen unless we plan it. Maybe we have to plan a half hour a day or a half hour a week or a month or a year, but whatever it is, we plan it. Private time is not selfish, nor is it wasted time. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness all alone, and it wasn't wasted, and it wasn't selfish. Paul spent some years out in the desert, he said, before his ministry ever began, and it wasn't wasted. And it wasn't selfish. We need to plan times of privacy. 
Third, when we get to those places of privacy, we need to shut out the world. We need to shut the door, unplug the phone, have hubby watch the kids, climb high enough up on the hill to ensure no interruptions, mask the noise or whatever it takes, but make sure that we are really alone. Fourth, it needs to be unaccountable time. You are not answerable to anyone for what you do during private time. That's what it means to have private time for yourself. That means you don't have to tell them what you did, and you shouldn't be asking what someone else is doing. Now, that can be abused. I said the private time, when you're all alone. It doesn't mean, obviously, that you can come home at uh, wee hours in the morning every night of the week and say, well, you don't need to know what I've been doing. I'm saying during those private times of being alone, it's unaccountable. No one knows. And if you want to get the most out of your private times and the privacy you need in your family, record your dreams and your thoughts and your struggles in a journal or a diary. Something that is absolutely, completely private. I think we need to allow our family members to have those private thoughts written down. That means that we don't look at their notebooks and journals and diaries. Not our children, not our parents, not our spouses, not our brothers and sisters. Family life, it's God's invention. And I think he invented it for a purpose. Family life is meant to teach us how to love imperfect people. If you look in your family and say, some of my family is not perfect, you're right. Because family life was given to us to learn to love imperfect people, since that's the only kind there are. Second, family life was given to us so that we might grow in our relationship with God, because there's some degree of growth we'll never experience outside of the family. Family life was given to us by God to teach biblical truth to another generation. It is the family unit that's responsible for the ongoing of biblical truth. Family life was given to us that we might experience abundant life with others. And I think one way to keep on achieving those very crucial goals of family life is to make sure we build into our family the right amount of privacy. Amen and amen. Dear Father, sometimes, Lord, we seem so terribly complex. We have such a hard time, Lord, understanding ourselves, and then we have a hard time with those loved ones around us. Help us, Lord, to think in more simple terms. To realize you understand. And help us to be willing to take and to give privacy to those we love the most. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>